This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Malcolm Harris was raised in the town of Palo Alto, the heartland of Silicon Valley and the birthplace of some of the most important technologies ever invented. We very literally live in the world created by the Palo Alto system, a set of 19th century ideas for innovation that have subtly shaped the way that business is still done in the valley today. Malcolm, it's fair to say, isn't the biggest fan of the system, and his excellent new book, Palo Alto, offers a very extensive, critical look at the people who made the contemporary world. I sat down with him last week to find out more. Malcolm, you've spent much of your childhood in Palo Alto. What was it like then, and what's it like now? Well, they're they're substantially different. Uh, A lot of the growth of what people think of as Silicon Valley has actually happened in the past 20 or so years. And I left in 2007. So I didn't even witness the sort of like post Facebook explosion personally. I grew up there from the mid 90s to the mid aughts. And it was still a a place of very exciting growth um, in some ways. And at the same time, as a a young person growing up there, there's this uh, sinister feeling, a a hauntedness um, that I try to capture in the book, exemplified in the unusually high youth suicide rate. So on one hand, you've got the growth of the the internet, the technology industry, a world center of production and innovation. And on the other hand, you have the children of that industry with a suicide rate that's five times as high as it's supposed to be. There is a sense in the book when you're talking about your childhood of growing up in an almost idyllic environment. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I mean, California, Northern California is, or at least was at the time these days, it's a little more ecologically unstable, Uh, but a truly beautiful place, you know, 330 out of 365 days of the year. It has this very idyllic suburban feeling. And when I moved there, you know, as a eight-year-old or whatever, it had this feeling of moving to almost to like the America that I saw on television because I had grown up in my early life, you know, in apartment buildings or duplexes or whatever, you know, and on the East Coast and it was snowy. And uh, and then you move to California and it's all these detached homes uh, and it's sunny all the time. Uh, and it looks like the, what you see on television, non-coincidentally with the television being produced in California. And will you tell us the story about the substitute teacher you had in primary school that kind of burst the bubble of this utopian idyll? Yeah, well, and this is a story I had only moved a couple years earlier. So I was really relatively new to town. And so I hadn't really been like absorbed into it quite as much. But when I was about 10 years old, we had this substitute teacher one day in class and she came in and she she sat all of, the, of us down. And instead of doing the regular lesson, she was trying to tell us about 
the town that we lived in. And she said, you guys need to understand that the rest of the world isn't like this, that you live in a bubble. Uh, and as a child, you know, as a 10 year old, it's hard to understand the difference between where you live and the rest of the world. But that always stuck in my head. And the next day, a teacher came back and apologized and said that that, that substitute would never be coming back and that uh, apologized for upsetting us and all of these things, uh, which helped that incident really stick in my mind. It's almost like a, a science fiction scenario, right, where someone comes in and tries to tell you that what you think about your world is, is not the real world. The city was founded by a robber baron by the name of Leland Stanford, and he casts a huge shadow over your life, and arguably 21st century capitalism itself. Who was he? Leland Stanford Sr. is the man who really stands for capital in the West in the mid-19th century in the United States. He's best known for perhaps being the, the head, the figurehead of the Railroad Combine, which is this organization that takes on a bunch of different names based on how it's trying to fleece the government out of funds that week, that connected California and the Alta California territory state to the East Coast of the United States by building this railroad over the Sierra Nevadas, which is a large mountain range on the West Coast, to connect it to what was then the Midwest, um, or what was the West now is the Midwest. And with that, you know, you can see him with the top hat and the coat, and he's held personally responsible by railroad workers, white-skinned railroad workers for bringing in Chinese railroad workers um, to compete with them. And so he's a target of the 19th century labor movement in California in particular. He's an important political figure, becoming governor of the state, as well as one of the first uh, national senators once California has senators. As governor, he provides funding for the genocidal anti-Indian campaigns that clear the land that then he owns as a, as a landowner. Um, but if we know him for one thing now, and if his name is famous for one thing around the world, it's for founding Stanford University uh, in Palo Alto, which is a suburb that he creates after sort of being driven from the city of San Francisco by these angry workers. Uh, so it's a direct product of these 19th century class tensions. And the university doesn't bear his name, it bears his son's name. Will you tell us about that? Absolutely. And a lot of people don't know that, that it's not Leland Stanford Senior University, it's Leland Stanford Junior University, named for his only son, the son of him and uh, Jane Stanford, who was his wife. And he was really raised to be the, the future of America. This is a, a world leader in training, uh, even at a very young age. If you read the stories in the book about his childhood, it's, it's almost hard to take uh, the rarefied role he had in society. And then dies, shockingly, tragically, as a young teenager um, of illness on one of his continental jaunts uh, with his parents. And his parents travel the world trying to think of what they're going to do, not just with their grief, but with their money, which had been prepared to be invested into Leland Stanford Jr. And at the end of this tour, what they decide is that they're going to turn their son into this university, that the benefits that they had planned to pass down to him would instead be passed down, dispersed through the children of the Anglo-American settler class that were settling in Alta, California. And they say, the children of California will be our children. And they name the, the school after their son, and that's the, the path that they set the, their wealth on into the future. 
We're going to come back to Stanford University in a bit and talk about it quite a lot. But before we do that, can you explain Stanford's Palo Alto system, which is critical to, in your view, the history of California and the world in the 20th century? Absolutely. And I almost titled the book that. I think the publisher was too worried that the Palo Alto system was going to sound like a business book and give people the wrong idea. I would actually say, you know, if you had a different politics, then this book could be a business manual. <laughs> right? Exactly. I, mean, I think there's a, definitely a way to read it against the grain, right? You can imagine a bad capitalist reader of Palo Alto who says, hey, this is great history. We've done, we've done awesome. This place is really a good model. Uh, and the Palo Alto system is a great example, because if you went to around Sand Hill Road, which is where the investors of Silicon Valley hang out, and you ask people, you know, what's the Palo Alto system, they wouldn't know this history unless they like read about it in my book, probably, or an excerpt in the Atlantic or, or something like that. Uh, but then if you if you put a gun to their head and said, no, tell me about the Palo Alto system, uh, they would probably tell you something that ends up being very close to this 19th century horse racing technique. And so when Leland Stanford first moves to Palo Alto, first takes his family out of the city, away from the Working Men's Association, they're lining upside his window and yelling at him all day, and they move to Palo Alto, he pursues his real interest, which is not actually the railroad or anything like that, but it's the breeding of trotting horses, the training and breeding um, and perfection of trotting horses. And trotting horses, if people don't know, are distinct from uh, galloping thoroughbreds because when they race, they're restrained to a trot and they pull a carriage behind them. So they're simulating not the, the sprinting horses that you might see on a Kentucky Derby or something, uh, but horses at work. And horses did a lot of work in America at the time whether it's dragging agricultural implements, dragging uh, cannons on, across military battles, dragging boats through canals, dragging streetcars through cities. Uh, horses and other pack animals were still the engines of America in the late 19th century. And Leland Stanford, as a man of science, uh, sets up what we can now understand as an experimental engine factory in Palo Alto, California, in his new town. And he sets himself to making a, a new kind of better kind of working horse. And people think he's very silly for this, right? That he's Because he has no particular training in this other than that just he's a, a capitalist founder. Uh, so it's like if Elon Musk decided he was going to make an electric car, for example, although he just bought that company. But similarly, this is like a tech leader guy deciding that he's going to disrupt a major part of the economy using vibes, right? Using like his sense of how things could be better as a capitalist, as well as a huge amount of capital. And so he quickly scales this trotting horse farm uh, to the largest one in the world. And he's setting up this new system with his head trainer, Charles Marvin, where they're going to try and train horses more quickly than people had in the past. Because in the past, in the history of horse training, the you wait till they're a couple years old to try and race them as fast as they, you can, because the risk of breaking your horse, not in a good way, but in the bad way of breaking a ligament or breaking a leg or something like that, uh, is too great when they're too young, Was had been the conventional wisdom for a long time. 
and horses, if you break a break a leg or you break a snap a ligament or something, there's you have to kill them. You can't. They don't heal from that. And since horses are expensive, you couldn't uh, race them faster, younger than that. Leland Stanford and Charles Marvin say, well, we don't have that problem. We can scale as big as we want. We can afford to waste horses. And in fact, if we see which horses fail, we can also see which horses succeed as young as possible. And then we can push all of our resources into training the successful horses because what they were after wasn't really the horse itself um, so much as its breeding potential. Uh, and so that was transferable. So if they say we could isolate the fastest horse genes as fast as possible as a yearling, as a colt, uh, you know, uh, then we can produce the fastest horses in the world with this excessive training that we're channeling into what we know are already the winners um, from youth. And if we spoil some good material along the way, that's okay. We can afford it. We have the scale to do it. And they looked to uh, the German early education, children's early education program that was just beginning in Germany at the time. They just invented this institution called the Kindergarten, uh, which is, you know, school for, for small children. And there weren't any kindergartens for kids past the Rockies uh, in the United States at the time. But Leland Stanford takes the inspiration from that and builds a kindergarten track, which is a shrunk down horse track where he could train these horses uh, to be faster, younger. And in spite of everyone's expectations, he succeeds and succeeds somewhat wildly, producing the fastest, youngest horses in the world, which everyone is very excited to get a hold of. Now, the plan, and Leland Stanford has this whole plan where he says there are 13 million horses in the United States. If I can raise the value of every one of those horses by $100, that's $1.3 billion for the American economy, which is very like tech disruptor style logic. And that doesn't ultimately work out because horses get replaced by steam engines uh, pretty quickly in the 20th century as the dominant power in the United States. And so that like horse disruptive model and Leland Stanford dies and uh, it doesn't ultimately transform the economy with its particular product. Although one of the externalities of that horse track was Edward Moybridge's moving pictures. Uh, so like movies were invented also uh, at this Palo Alto horse track. That just shows what a like large, uh, you know, productive thing was really going on here. That uh, something as big as motion pictures could be spun off just from like one of the ways they were trying to analyze horses. But this Palo Alto system of we're going to pour tons of capital into a disruptive strategy we're looking for like youth, speed, uh, genetics. All of these principles and understandings are going to underlie production in Palo Alto and production in Silicon Valley through the 20th century into the 21st century. And so again, if you go to Sand Hill Road and say, what's the Palo Alto system? Uh, no, really, you have to tell me what the Palo Alto system is. They would probably get there. Like they could come up with something like that about scale and disruption and speed and youth and concentration of capital and like all of these things. Um, and so I've, I've been surprised that this story hasn't been used as more of a metaphor uh, for the regional industry because it's really not. I mean, you really could have said move fast and break things. 
Before we talk about how Stanford University incubates these ideas, let's talk about the fight for the soul of that university right at its founding. We've got Leland, who wants to found a trade school, a free public trade school. His wife, Jane, who wants to found a liberal arts and humanities college. And the president of Stanford, David Jordan, an incredibly sinister man in your characterization, who finds himself in conflict with Jane. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when they're going around to try and recruit the first head of this university, they first try the Ivy League schools, you know, they go to Columbia, they go to Harvard, and they ask the presidents, hey, do you want to come be president of our school? Instead, we'll pay you way more. But again, it's like this tech disruptor kind of situation, right? If some if Peter Thiel went to the president of Harvard and said, do you want to be president of Thiel University? I'm just starting it, but I'll pay you a lot of money. Probably tell him to fuck off. Uh, and that's what all the Ivy League presidents did. Is said like, no, we don't. We're not going to go be president of Robert Barron University in California because also California is an intellectual backwater at the time. Uh, and so they work their way down till they get to David Starr Jordan, who's the president of Indiana University. And he's a modern thinker in the same way that they are modern thinkers. Uh, specifically, he believes in co-educational institutions, which Jane and Leland also believe, although Jane, like a little, she wants to cap the number of women students. She doesn't want like equality in terms of the numbers, but they, they agreed that women should be admitted into the school, uh, which was very progressive at the time. You know, the Ivy League schools do not fully gender integrate until the 1980s. Uh, so this was like a different idea of how to run a school. And so they bring him out and he ends up as the first president of the university. And he's an ichthyologist by training, studying fish and fish biology and fishes. Um, but what he's really, really interested in is eugenics and uh, the formation of a better Anglo-Saxon uh, future in America and specifically in the American West. And this is where he's, this is what he sees as the crucible for the genetic future of America. Not like those eggheads uh, out east, but also not soft like in the tropics. And he's all these like racial theories for the end of the 19th century, beginning of, 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And he's in fact one of the like world leaders of eugenic thinking. Uh, if you go to like the world eugenics conferences or whatever, you're going to find him. He's a very important guy. And eugenics plays a big role at Indiana University, which is very involved in agriculture tying it back to the horses. So there's that connection. But so he has this very specific idea of what the school is for, which is creating uh, the next generation of American leaders through the science of genetics. And this comes into conflict with Jane Stanford, who after the death of her husband, Leland, uh, is the driving force behind the university. And she has she's much more interested in philosophy and psychology she brings William James, the, the famous philosopher, over from Harvard. He, she's going through this like long campaign to get him to come visit and, and stay for a semester. Um, and the two of them, David Starr Jordan and Jane Stanford, uh, quickly find themselves in conflict about the direction for the school. That David Starr Jordan wants to direct the budget away from Memorial architecture, which Jane Stanford is very interested in as tributes to her son, um, including the, the museum, which at the time is the largest private museum in the United States that exists on the Stanford campus. It's a, like an equivalent of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that they were building in Palo Alto, California, which seemed ridiculous, but it was ridiculous. 
And David Starr Jordan wanted to hire more eugenicists from Indiana University, basically. He brings over this whole crew of guys from his school, um, set up this department teaching what he called bionomics, which is what we would sort of understand as evolutionary psychology, is to, to explain everything in the world through the science of eugenics, uh, not just biology, but sociology, uh, comparative literature, you know, like whatever you wanted to study, you could study it through eugenics. And that's what they were teaching at Stanford. And so Jane and, and David Starr Jordan end up in this conflict where it really looks like she's going to fire him. She's told people she's going to fire him. Um, she's like planning for his replacements. She's overruled him on William James. He's set to come over like really soon. And he's sort of stuck in this untenable position after a few like national level scandals around the school about academic freedom and who's really in charge of the school. Uh, and it looks like not only is he going to get fired, but he's not going to be able to easily find another job in academia because other people like uh, are sort of down on him. Uh, and then she dies. Very, very suddenly dies. Uh, and she's poisoned. First in California, doesn't die, and then Jane Stanford flees to Hawaii, where she is once again poisoned in the same manner, this time fatally. And throughout this process, Jordan is covering up the, the murder. He says, I'm a doctor. There was no murder. After the first poisoning, he tells the papers, no, she wasn't poisoned. There absolutely was no poisoning. I'm her friend, believe me, which of course he wasn't. After she dies, he goes to Hawaii and obstructs the inquest saying that you can't trust any Hawaiian doctors because they're savage Hawaiians. And of course, these are like retired Anglos living in Hawaii, whatever. We're like, what are you talking about? She was obviously poisoned with strychnine. But he's really good at playing the press. And so everything sort of settles down. And for 100 years, the story is that Jane Stanford died of being a crazy old lady. And David Starr Jordan takes over the school very directly and really creates the Stanford that we know today. And his name is just now being taken, like just recently being taken off institutions, buildings, etc. When I was growing up there, one of the two middle schools in town was David Starr Jordan uh, Middle School. And the other middle school was Jane Lathrop Stanford Middle School. And we didn't know that like JLS versus Stanford, which was the, the town rivalry, that he had actually probably murdered her, had been involved in her murder, and they didn't tell us this. So it's just another example of the sort of like haunting going on uh, beneath these idyllic institutions. So Jordan gets everything he wanted, essentially. What are the key features of quote-unquote Stanford Mann, his ideal student? That's a great question. So when they were thinking about how do we grow this university and very quickly, how do we become a world-class institution right away? Because that's what they were most interested in. And one of the answers they came to was to focus on areas that were of increasing national and global importance. And so the first subject they focus on like that is mining engineering. And Stanford becomes a real center of production for mining engineers. And at a time of global imperialism, this is at the end of the 19th century, right? This is the race for Africa. This is the open veins of Latin America. You have European empires competing to dig up the world everywhere in the world. 
And the United States is not so much part of this competition at the time, partly because they have the whole west of the continent to colonize and do their digging in California as opposed to elsewhere, and then Nevada and in other places in the west. Uh, but these European imperialists, in terms of who are the personnel they want, are really want California mining engineers, because California mining engineers were seen as the most advanced practitioners because of this whole, they were the heirs to the gold rush, the, which obviously happens in 1849, and a lot of mining capital sticks around in the West, and they focus on this new discipline, this new subject. And so Stanford really focuses on producing world-class mining engineers, and the most famous one is a guy named Herbert Hoover, who was part of the first class at Stanford University, and he goes on to be not just the most successful mining engineer in the world, but then president of the United States. So that's, uh, and he's part of the first class of Stanford University, at 18, graduates in 1895. And so right off the bat, they're very successful in this like eugenic project of we're going to create the man of the future. And it very quickly, you move from mining engineering to electronics engineering, like much, much quicker than people think uh, through radio engineering. And this is in like the World War I era. This acquires a military significance. And so very quickly, you know, within a few decades of the school's founding, you already have this vision of the military industrial complex around Stanford University doing electronics and engineering uh, and Stanford managing this three-way relationship between itself, the university, industry, capitalist industry, and the state very, very quickly. And so Federal Telegraph, which where television ends up being invented, is a product of the Stanford faculty, that the faculty uh, invests in this new telegraph startup locally in San Francisco and in Palo Alto. And that pattern, which was, again, over 100 years ago, um, really persists and really sets up the university to succeed. And especially in the post-war era, with the development of the transistor, which is not that far from the sort of light bulb type devices that they were creating in the radio engineering programs um, in the pre-war time, uh, explodes. And we understand that the, the Palo Alto produced thereby as Silicon Valley. Um, but the, the ingredients there had been there from the very beginning. Another Stanford product of this time is IQ testing. Absolutely. A big part of the Binomics project of raising smart, high-achieving men and women to drive American industry. So will you tell us a little bit about the foundations of IQ testing and how they go on to impact the history of America? So one of the guys that David Starr Jordan brings over from Indiana University is a guy named Lewis Terman. And Lewis Terman's a psychologist who later becomes president of the American Psychological Association, very influential as, a, as an early psychologist. And he's another one of these eugenicists, very invested in these ideas of progress through breeding and uh, analysis. And for to develop bionomics into a science that could be applied to humans, they had to create some sort of test for general quality, right? They had to like try and pull out some quantitative measure for the quality of a person. And so Lewis Terman takes this test that had been developed in France by this guy, Alfred Binet, 
that had been used to sort of identify kids in school who needed more help, who were like falling behind in class and needed a little extra assistance. And Binet says very specifically, like, do not use this test as a test of general intelligence. That's not what it is. Don't use it that way. Terman takes it, does exactly what he's not supposed to do, and creates the Stanford-Binet IQ test, which is still the basis for the IQ test that we know today. And he does a couple of very interesting things with those tests, and as well as developing them with, uh, with his whole department that he's really building. One is that he starts. they start looking for geniuses throughout the state. And they, their goal is to t try and find every exceptionally brilliant child in the whole state. And so they're asking teachers for recommendations, and then they're giving kids these tests, and they're tracking them throughout their lives. And Terman not only like tracks these kids to see how they're doing, he sort of can't help just assuming that he's already got the answer and helping them along the way. And so, like, throughout their, the experiment, which is actually still going on, I believe there are still Termin geniuses who are alive, which is insane. Like, that's hard to believe. Um, yeah, I still believe it to be the case. He would sort of, like, write them recommendations saying, like, oh, yeah, this person's a genius. Like, <laughs> you know, which sort of ruins the scientific valid validity of the test. But he'd accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, which was to be able to label or understand geniuses, predict them. One of those geniuses happened to be his own child, of course, uh, Frederick Terman, who tested extraordinarily high um, and enrolled at Stanford as a, a teenager um, and was already like spending his life at the school and would become a very important person. A second thing that they did with those IQ tests uh, that was crucial is that they applied them to draftees during World War I and a version of them called Army Alpha and Army Beta. And this was an extension of David Starr Jordan's eugenic thought, which was that he was a pacifist, and he was a hardcore pacifist because he believed that war had become dysgenic. And he has this great phrase that the clown can shoot down the hero. Since the invention of, of gunpowder, there's nothing eugenic about war. Instead, war, you're just likely to get the most brave guys shot first. And then where are you, right? Then it's just the cowards who are breeding, and so you're worse off. But then it became clear that the Germans didn't see uh, evolution the same way, that they saw it as a martial process that involved war. And so it became clear to the California eugenicists pretty quickly that they were going to have to get used to using eugenics for war if they were going to compete with the Germans, which became uh, increasingly necessary with, obviously, World War I. And so what the IQ tests could do, in theory, was separate the A students from the C students from the F students. Um, and they did have five grades in the same way that we had five grades, even though they didn't have A through F grades at the time. Uh, and the idea was you took the A students and you moved them away from the front. You didn't want the A students in the trenches. You wanted them at home in ROTC or in some bunker somewhere doing scientific equations. You take the C students and you put them in the trenches and the front lines and the D and the F students, maybe you should find something else to do with them because they probably shouldn't be like leading your military efforts because like they're not all the way there. And this was the, the, an attempt to not only employ these geniuses and science in the most efficient way for American victory, but also to protect 
their genes. And I didn't really quite understand how personal this process was until I realized that Lewis Terman is conducting these tests and doing this policy right when his son turns 18. Frederick Terman turns 18 just as the draft age for World War I gets lowered to 18. And so when he's thinking about the future genes of America getting wasted in the trenches of Europe, this is very personal for him, right? This is his genius son who he could see getting killed. Um, and instead, Frederick Terman spends the war uh, still at Stanford University in ROTC, where he spent his whole life. And then he goes on to be a very important part of the American World War II effort. He wins the highest civilian honor for uh, helping direct the radar program in World War II, helping win the war against the Germans from a bunker uh, somewhere else doing scientific equations rather than on the front lines. And so this eugenic plan for American militarism that involves employing science and technology from the home front as a military strategy is very successful. And it's led out of Stanford University, as well as out of, out of Harvard at Cambridge. Um, and the two are intertwined in a couple of different ways. Frederick Terman goes to Harvard or goes to MIT for his, uh, his doctorate, where he learns a lot about what this sort of three-way relationship between the university, the state, and the military could look like. And he comes back, and at Stanford University, where he becomes the provost post-war, he really turns the university into the ideal Cold War university. Um, and again, these ingredients are all in place from the point of David Starr Jordan, from his arrival at the university in 1891. Right, You can see a clear shot through to Silicon Valley in the post-war American order. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the Terman children who wasn't quite good enough to be classified as a genius is William Shockley Jr., and he is a truly awful man in your characterization, but also a man of extreme historical significance. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, he is probably best known for two things. The one is the thing that he's probably most well known for is winning the Nobel Prize with a couple of other guys for inventing the point contact transistor, as well as bringing microchip production to the valley and founding Silicon Valley. He's the guy who puts the silicon in Silicon Valley. Uh, and the second thing he's known for is being one of the most famous and influential racists of the American 20th century. And he is like, along with Frederick Terman, who we were just talking about, the, who's the son of Lewis Terman and provost of the school, considered one of the two sort of grandfathers or godfathers of Silicon Valley. He's like in, in the DNA, if you want to use a, a resonant metaphor. And people have, for a long time, his biographers have been sort of confused about why he was obsessed with race and genetics and IQ and human competition. 
And I find that so funny because, again, he's like such a direct product of this place. You know, both his mother is a mining engineer who's trained at Stanford University in, in the early days. His father is trained at MIT as a mining engineer and then becomes a professor at Stanford where they raise him. His parents are friends with uh, Herbert Hoover and the Hoovers, the other like Stanford mining engineering families. And he's, as you said, he's tested as a child by Lewis Terman for genius, right? He's like as organic a product of this place as you could possibly be. And he reflects its values into the future, uh, indefinitely into the future. Palo Alto at this time was transforming into the white picket fence suburbia we're so familiar with from movies and TV and your description of your own childhood. But this world is built by and for the military industrial complex. Absolutely. And when we think of the, the post-war Silicon Valley order and we think of what are its, you know, signature products, you know, what was going on here really, people probably think maybe of microchips, maybe they think about the personal computer, uh, maybe they even think about the internet. I've been thinking about this lately is that like the internet um, and the internetworking era is not that far from the post-war era, from where we're currently sitting. Like if you're a young person in the 2020s, you probably think of the internet as part, especially with ARPANET and its like origins in the like World War II era, big science, military industrial complex. Like the internet also seems like a product of this era. And I'm not sure that's wrong, even though the age of the internet is really like the 1990s, which is a, a distinct historical period. But that's when you think of Silicon Valley, you think of microchips, computers, internet. You don't think about nuclear missiles, um, but you really should because that's what the entire first generation of silicon chips went into is these Minuteman 1 nuclear missiles. And that was a really, uh, those were missiles where a gun pointed at the world's head that says, if anything happens to America, this whole place is going sky high, it's game over. And that was a sort of refining of this Jordan idea of we needed to produce uh, such efficient war makers that they would be able to secure the place for our people into the future at a time when the world threatens to get much more equal, right? You've got the world communist movement, you've got decolonization. And so the idea that some white engineers in California we're going to maintain their stranglehold on the world into the 21st century sounded really far-fetched. You know, people did not believe that that was going to happen. They thought, figured that all people were going to be way more equal than that and that the inequalities that structured the world in the 19th century couldn't possibly continue to structure the world into the 21st century. Uh, and Palo Alto and the Palo Alto system and Palo Alto technology and Stanford University and Silicon Valley uh, were reactionary solutions to that problem and have continued to be. And now we find ourselves here in the 21st century looking at their success, right? Looking at a world that is still, and in fact, perhaps more so than ever, controlled by some engineers out of California. I think the person in the present day who most epitomizes the Palo Alto system and the role of the military-industrial complex in Silicon Valley is arguably Peter Thiel. Can you speak a little to that and what it means yeah. for the future of the valley? Yeah, Thiel, I think, is a is an interesting figure and is, is much more interesting to me than someone like Elon Musk, who 
I think he gets maybe one mention in the book, you know, like, and he, and it's that he's one of these dot com era lucky guys who wandered into a bunch of money. Uh, and I think he's, he's probably like a, been an exceptionally lucky gambler, uh, and the system has valued him in that way. But I think Teal is someone who understands the Palo Alto history and understands that the, this industry is embedded in global history in a way that a lot of his peers don't. And he's embraced that reactionary role. Um, and so that he really inherits from Herbert Hoover, from David Starr Jordan, from William Shockley, from this whole line of Stanford engineer, technician, uh, even though he's neither an engineer nor a technician, founder types. I think uh, David Packard is also an important one in that line who we didn't talk about. Uh, Hewlett Packard, who's not only one of the big founders who links the radio age to the personal computer age, but who also is deeply involved in the military industrial complex and in fact rises to the level of deputy secretary of defense under Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War, which is like it doesn't get more military industrial complex than that. And in fact, the procurement award, they still award the like David Packard Award for military procurement. Uh, so that's how tightly these things have been uh, entwined for a long time. And he's also a, a leader within the American conservative movement, uh, which is also builds out of Stanford University through something called the Hoover Institution. And so Peter Thiel really inherits all of these pieces uh, and sort of puts on the robe and uh, so to speak uh, and continues the the job. And so he's um, part of the board of trustees at the Hoover Institution at one point. He's a uh, Stanford student who is very outspoken right wing Stanford student. Um, and after trying a couple different jobs, finds himself back in Palo Alto, uh, back in Silicon Valley trying to lead this industry into the 21st century. And with the with Donald Trump's election, he plays a, a huge role in connecting Silicon Valley to the military-industrial complex in a new way. Because in the 20th century, these Silicon Valley firms were very careful to stay one level removed from federal contracts, working as federal subcontractors so that to avoid the state oversight. Under Thiel's leadership, the industry has shifted towards prime contracts dealing directly with the Defense Department, with Homeland Security. I think you can point to the meeting Thiel arranges between Trump and the Trump administration and Silicon Valley leaders very close uh, to the beginning of Trump's term as a turning point for the industry and that relationship, which... Uh, is a big moment. And I think in terms of what we should be looking at in terms of Silicon Valley and where it's going right now, that's where we should be looking less into the sort of consumer AI products, certainly less into like crypto or Web3 or some of these other more frivolous distractions and really think about the history of global politics because uh, that's where Silicon Valley really shines. If you were able to change history and uh, you rewrite the history of your hometown and the many innovations that came out of it. Would you save anything? Oh, I. So Karl Marx has this great phrase about uh, utopian socialism being wanting to take a picture of the world and remove the shadows, right? 
uh, and that that's the utopian urge is that you can take the world as it is and just like pull out the bad parts and leave the good parts and that you could live in that world. Uh, and so the utopianism isn't the idea that like we can live in a better world. Like everyone believes that if you have any sort of belief in progress. Utopianism is the idea that you can just take the bad parts out and leave the good parts and not deal with some like larger transformation. And so I don't have to imagine that we can change history. I believe that we can change history. I know that we can change history. I've seen it uh, firsthand. And so I think the, the better question is right now, like where do we see legacies in that history that are worthwhile, that we can sort of pick up and run with and continue and where do we see enemies of the people, right? Where do we see uh, tendencies that want to stop us from finding solutions to the world's problems at the level of the world? And I think you can look at right now, there's a, a Stanford graduate student unionization campaign that's got overwhelming support among graduate workers. And the union that's come in to organize them is the, it's called the UE, it's the Union of Electrical Workers. And that's the same union that had, in the 20th century, tried numerous times to try and organize factory workers, you know, line workers within the, the burgeoning electronics industry. And so you see the, you know, the historical repetition of these patterns and these struggles. So if there's one thing I would want to like repeat and bring forward, it's those struggles, right? We can't like just pull out the shadows. It's the struggles that we have to bring forward into the, into the present. Well, Malcolm, that's a nicely upbeat note on which to end an otherwise right? quite depressing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This episode starred Malcolm Harris and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. I make the show with Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. For more on how big tech has changed the world for better or worse, check out my recent interviews with Scott Shapiro on hacking and with Susie Allegra on the freedom to think. Till next time, thanks for listening.